0: Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and if you want to learn more about our church, look us up on Facebook or our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Our sermon podcast is available in most places that you find podcasts. You can find them in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, even iHeartRadio. Subscribe to always get the next episode of the podcast. Today, the message is about communion, the practice of communion. The more we dig into this practice, the more we will find that it is an act of worship that unites the church and calls each person in the church to proclaim the power of Christ. But I know that as soon as we start talking about communion... There, as many denominations as there are, as many churches as there are, there are views on how to participate in communion and who can participate and, and what elements you can use. Is it, is it leavened bread or unleavened bread? Is it wine? Is it juice? Is it you know, Do you do it once a week? Do you do it once a month? Do you do it quarterly? How do you practice communion? We can get fixated on the particulars and we can get focused on the wrong battle to fight. It's said that when the British and the French were fighting in Canada in the 1750s, Admiral Phipps, commander of the British fleet, was told to anchor outside Quebec. He was given orders to wait for the British land forces to arrive and then support them when they attacked the city. Phip's navy arrived early, and as the admiral waited, he became annoyed by the statues of the saints that adorned the towers of a nearby cathedral, so he commanded his men to shoot at them with the ship's cannons. Nobody knows how many rounds were fired or how many statues were knocked off, but when the land forces arrived, the signal was given to attack, and the admiral was of no help. He had used up all his ammunition shooting at statues." He was fighting the wrong battle. When it came time for the real fight, the one that mattered, he was unprepared and unable to help. And when it comes to the ordinance of communion, Christians unfortunately fight about the particulars and forget about the real battle we face against sin and Satan and the the mission that we're on to rescue the lost. So I urge you today, as we talk about communion, put aside some of the particulars, and think about the practice. Think about what communion calls us to. Perhaps there is no practice in worship that both unifies and divides the church as much as communion does. Different move- movements within the Christian church have various convictions over communion. If you're a Catholic, you believe the bread and the wine become literally the body and blood of Jesus, a sacrifice that's made by Jesus in the worship service. The Lutheran perspective is is that the body and the blood are mysteriously present, but so are the bread and the wine. There are other views, as, as there are many other denominations as well, we don't have time to cover them all, but at Valley View Friends Church, we view communion as an act of remembrance. The bread and the juice are symbols that remind us of what Jesus did on the cross. And it should be noted that early friends didn't observe communion at all. The Quaker movement began at a time in England which the general population saw ordinances like communion and baptism as steps towards salvation, that when they observed communion and participated in baptism, they received grace. They got a little bit closer to God. Quakers argued that our standing before God was due only to the work of Jesus, not our participation in communion and baptism. (coughs) To avoid confusion uh, that people had over the power of communion, early friends did not practice it at all. Now, as evangelical friends, we practice communion and we practice baptism, but we see them as symbols. Acts, the act of communion, the act of baptism, is a testimony to the power of Christ in the life of of a believer. And I want us to spend a little bit of time today learning about communion and what the Bible has to say about it. And we're going to look at several texts today that talk about communion. Most of them are going to come from 1 Corinthians. But I want you to walk away with this. Communion is an act of worship where the people of God are un- unified as the church. And we commemorate and anticipate and participate in the death of Jesus Christ when we practice communion. So let's look at that first idea that the people of God are unified. John Wesley tells... so. John Wesley was very distressed. And so then in his dream, he was ushered to the gates of heaven. And there he asked the same question. Are there any any Presbyterians, any Baptists, any Episcopalians, any Methodists? Every denomination he could think of, he asked, are they there? And the answer came back, at the gates of heaven, no. And John Wesley was very distressed. He said, well then, who is inside heaven? And the answer came back, there are only Christians here. It is amazing the ways that we Can divide instead of unify. And the Christians in Corinth were suffering from union without unity. They were together in body, but divided in heart and divided in mind and even divided in spirit. So what was going on? How do we know they were divided? And how do we know this had anything to do with communion? And as I said, we're going to look at some passages from 1 Corinthians and that talks about the Corinthian church. And so 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17 tell us this. Paul is writing and he's talking about communion. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. So we are told that we who are many are one body. We're to be unified. And communion is an act that should unify Christians. It's an act of worship that should unite the church. What happened is that the, Christian, the Corinthians became divided, and we wonder, well, how did they get divided? What's going on? So if we go back to 1 Corinthians, and we actually move forward in the book a little bit more, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen 17 through 22, tell us this. Paul's writing, and I realize this is a little bit of a complex passage, but he writes and he says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Basically, he's saying, I can't give you praise in what you're doing here because it's you're really messing up. He says, In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions in you in order for those who are genuine among you, to be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Don't you have houses to eat or drink in? Or how do you despise, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I realize that's a complex passage. And you could be asking yourself, what on earth is happening here? The Christians in Corinth were split. They were divided. In verse 18, where we see that word, they were di- there was division among them. It's the Greek word schismata, where we get the word schism. There is no, This is no small divide, but a split that is harming the church and paralyzing its ministry. The Corinthians didn't see how they were dividing themselves up, though. I, I really believe that. Uh, and, and they didn't see that they were to remove these dis- divides, especially during worship. To understand this, you got to picture the early church, the local congregation, and that they would meet in a house. We're used to our church buildings, but in those days, the church would meet in a house. And usually what happened was there was a person in the congregation who was wealthy, usually had a large home, and they would host the gathering of the church. Now, this is different from a small group a small group meeting in a home like we do here today. Uh, Often in the United States, we have small groups and you might have uh, six, eight, maybe 12 people get together. But in a house church in New Testament times, you would have a group of 50 to 100 people gathered together. Now the local congregation would gather in the host's home for worship. And this would involve a meal it would involve the Lord's Supper. It would involve worship, on hearing the scripture, on teaching and singing. The congregation would be made up of people from all economic levels. So you got to have this picture in your mind. There would be the wealthy. There would be tradesmen. There would be the poor. There would be slaves. There would be elderly. There would be children. Picture, if you will, a house in the Mediterranean with a large courtyard where everybody can gather And a formal room for for revered guests. And so those who were wealthy could arrive whenever they wanted. Because they didn't have any obligations during the day. And they could arrive early for worship and early for the meal. Now there were those who were tradesmen and poor and slaves. And they could only arrive after their work was done. After their needs were met for the day. Or after their masters released them from their work for the day. The wealthy would always be able to get the best seats and have first choice in food and drink. And most likely, they would gather in a room called the triclinium. It's basically a a dining room for revered guests. And this was a room uh, where the guests would recline on couches while they ate. It would typically be about 24 foot by 18 foot in size. And even though it was that large, because of the couches, they would have 9 to 10 people allowed in that room. Now those that came after the wealthy, after the triclinium was full, would be placed in the atrium, that courtyard outside. And the atrium was actually smaller. It was a space about 20 foot by 16 foot in size, but there weren't any couches, so there was more room. And you would fit 30 guests in there, three times more in a smaller space. The last to gather... The last to arrive would be asked to stand around the edges of the atrium, or they might be placed in an overflow room, and that overflow room was most often reserved for children and slaves. So now you can get a picture of a hierarchy. First class guests in the formal dining room, second class guests in the courtyard, and maybe a third class around the edges or at the kiddie table. This disunity was soaking into the Corinthian church. When we hear about the structure, I think most of us would feel like it should not be this way. We go, well, you shouldn't have a special place for the, the, the wealthy and most important, and you shouldn't have a, a side room for the least important. But this division, this way of sorting out dinner guests was normal. Everybody did it this way, whether they're Christian or not. When, when you had a dinner... This is how you split people over the whole house. The Corinthians might not have been thinking about how to make some people feel small and others feel revered. They were like fish, unaware of the water they're swimming in. This practice was so common, it never dawned on them them that they were dividing the body of Christ. This was normal. Well, of course, we always divide it this way. This is what everybody does. But they aren't everybody now. They're not anybody now. They are Christians, and so they must do things differently. They shouldn't divide up this way. And Paul's writing to tell them to stop. Stop having people that arrive early and eat everything and get drunk and having people that arrive late and there's nothing left for them. They're not to be divided like that. And I think likewise, we need to watch out. Because there are ways that we divide ourselves today that we might do it unknowingly. Because we divide ourselves so naturally in our society, and I think sometimes we don't even see the ways that we divide ourselves, or it's so common that we don't think about it anymore, like blue-collar versus white-collar, high school graduates versus college graduates versus those who don't graduate at all. We divide by skin color. We divide by age. We divide by where we like to sit in the church, even. I mean, if you want to have a a day where you just get everybody upset, have the left side of the church invade the right side of the church. And if you want to really throw someone for a loop on where people sit in the church, have the people who sit in the front go fill in the back rows. The turmoil would be unfathomable. We divide in ways that we don't even realize. So how do we guard against division? There's a couple easy ways to do it. First, we're to put our focus on Jesus. That's where we put our focus. Communion is about the work of Christ. It's about Jesus from beginning to end. And if we grab onto Jesus, we'll be more unified than if we just simply say, you know what, I've got to get close to my brother. We get closer to our brother. We get closer to our sister by getting closer to Jesus. A.W. Tozer says it well. He says this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard by which one must in, each one must individually bow. So one hundred worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be where they were trying to become unified in conscience and turn their eyes away from God and try to get closer to one another. We build unity by focusing on Jesus. We also build unity by becoming intentional in our actions uh, through connecting with one another and reconciling with one another. In a world where it is increasingly easy to live on autopilot, we must choose to be intentional in building unity in the body of Christ. Resolve to be a unity builder. Don't go into autopilot. Seek out people. Try to find common ground. Sometimes we divide up the body of Christ deliberately, but most of the time it's out of cultural habit. We don't even realize we're doing it. And in those moments, when we unintentionally divide, we need to be gracious rather than assuming others meant to harm or offend you. And perhaps 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven 27, and 29 can help us in building unity, where it says, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord with an unworthy, in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. These verses should tell us that participating in communion is serious business, not to be taken lightly. Without thought or without examination of our own relationship with Jesus. When we read words like, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, we should stand up and pay attention. And while some might read those words saying that the act of the communion without the right heart and right relationship with Jesus is dangerous, The text is also telling us that we need to take seriously the saving sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his invitation for us to join him by taking up our own crosses. Anytime we enter into worship thoughtlessly, we stand on dangerous uh, ground and in a dangerous position. Anytime we enter into worship without reconciliation, we stand on dangerous ground. And so one way we unify is by examining ourselves before we take communion and asking ourselves, do I need to reconcile with my brother or sister in Christ? Is there something I, I have to get right that I know is wrong? Matthew five twenty three and 24 says this, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Please, take seriously the call to examine yourself before communion. Reconciliation must happen either between you and God, or you and a fellow brother and sister in Christ, lest you drink judgment on yourself. Now you might say that's a tough thing, but I see it as a beautiful moment that we share in communion, where each one of us is united in the body and blood of Jesus. Unity is as important, is important an important part of communion, but now I want to turn your attention to three actions that we're called to in communion. We're called for to commemorate, to anticipate, and to proclaim. So let's look at First Corinthians 11, uh, verses 23 through 26, where it says this: For I received from the Lord. Let me start again. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed We are forgetful creatures. How many of us have felt the fire of our faith when we first became a Christian, and then as time passed, that fire seemed to burn down to a low level. This is common. Familiarity can diminish the freshness of our faith. Routine can also contribute and make our faith kind of dull. When familiarity and routine set in, doubt can follow. And we start to ask questions like, well, was it real anyway? Have I done something wrong in my own faith? And we begin to forget So we start to make the fire of our faith and the power of salvation about us. And we ask ourselves the question again, have I done something wrong? Sometimes we just need to remember. And communion allows us to remember, to reflect on what Jesus has done for us. I like this uh, word here. It says this, sometimes we as Christians need to stop along life's road and look back. Although it might have been a winding and steep route, we can see how God directed us by his faithfulness. Here's how F.E. Marsh described it, how the Christian can look back and see his life. We can look back and see these things, the deliverance that the Lord has brought for us, the ways that God has led us, the blessings that he has bestowed upon us, the victories that he has won for us, the encouragements that he has given us. When we face difficulties, we sometimes forget God's past faithfulness. We see only the the detours and the dangerous path. But look back and you will see the joy of victory, the challenge of the climb, and the presence of your traveling companion who has promised never to leave you nor forsake you in Jesus Christ. Communion asks us to reflect, to remember, to commemorate and look back at what Jesus has done. Communion also asks us to anticipate, to look forward. 1 Corinthians 11:26 says this, "For often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." This verse tells us that there is anticipation in communion. Communion looks back in remembrance, but it also looks forward. We should never forget that Jesus is returning. If only, if our only assessment of Christianity is about what Jesus has done in the past, then we misunderstand what the future holds for us. We, we forget what God has planned. Corey Ten Boom says this, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. We have a known God, and you know what? We have a known future. We may not know all the details, we know the final outcome, that Jesus is coming back, that God is completely victorious. So when we share in communion, we look back, but we also look forward with anticipation. And lastly, we are called to participate. There's a participation that's required of us as we share in communion. And that participation is that we join with Jesus in the work of God's kingdom. See, communion provides the opportunity to bear witness to Christ. We are invited to preach the gospel when we take communion together. As we celebrate it, in that moment, we are proclaiming, This is what God, what Jesus has done for me. Now, you may say, yeah, You're no preacher. I don't know that I can speak, a, a, or I can proclaim the way that a pastor does. But each Christian is called to preach, each Christian is called to proclaim. And each one of us are empowered to do it in the most powerful way possible, by telling your story. Don Hewitt, the creator of 60 Minutes, and is, uh, on his special talent as a journalist, says this, My philosophy is simple. It's what little kids say to their parents, tell me a story. Even the people who wrote the Bible knew that when you deal with issues, you tell stories, is what he says. If the issue was evil, the story was Noah. And then Don Hewitt continues and he says, I had producer say, we've got to do something about acid rain. And I'd say, hold it. Acid rain is not a story. Acid rain is a topic. We don't do topics. Find me someone who has to deal with the problem of acid rain. And now you have a story. And when you take communion, you're telling the story. The story of Jesus' sacrifice over your life. So you are proclaiming, and you're proclaiming more powerfully than any sermon. You're telling your story. William Penn says this, Nothing reaches the heart but what is from the heart, or pierces the conscience but what is, comes from a living conscience. When we share communion together, it is a moment when every Christian is able to bear witness and proclaim, Christ died for me, I am his, and he is mine. Communion is not simply a practice that Christians do. It is in communion that we are all reminded that we are tied together by the body and blood of Christ. In communion, we remember what Jesus has done and we have been restored to God and liberated from the penalty of sin. In communion, we look forward to the future that Jesus has for us and we are to participate and proclaim Jesus as Lord over our lives. Can you today affirm and say, Christ died for me, I am his, and he is mine. Let's pray. Lord, help each of us to see how you desire for your church to be unified, and in, and in one voice and in one strength. Reveal to us the ways that we divide each other. Perhaps we're not even aware of them. Lord, even as we partake of communion together, bind your church closer together. Empower us to proclaim boldly what Jesus has done in our lives, and that he's coming back. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus, that he would give his body and shed his blood to restore us to you. Help us to never forget, and help us to look forward with anticipation of Jesus' return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go with Jesus.